Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The recent U.S. government report on climate change reflects the scientific world's dire warnings about how serious it is. While the president says he does not buy into the report, our next guest does because she has been experiencing the impact of climate change firsthand. She is Amy Martin, the founder and executive producer of Threshold, a podcast and public radio show about the environment. She's reported it in her home state and at the top of the world. I spoke to her recently and asked about Threshold's concept. So it's a radio show and a podcast, and it's basically uh, grew out of my desire to go in-depth on environmental issues. Um, I was doing stories for NPR and other um, public radio outlets, which is great to do the short you know, radio story. And as you know, a long radio story in, is like five minutes. <laughs> I wanted to go deeper and really dive in uh, to one issue with a lot of detail and a lot of nuance over a series of episodes. Well, you've wrapped up two seasons. And the first one dealt with bison. That surprised me a little bit. It's not the first thing I think of when I think of an environmental issue. Why bison? Well, I live in Montana, and um, that's one of the places where bison are being restored, which is uh, pretty exciting. And also, I feel like it's um, kind of a signature environmental story for our country that a lot of people don't know about. Um, Because when you talk about bison, you're not only talking about an animal. You're talking about culture clash between Native Americans and European settlers. And you're talking about um, all kinds of ways in which economy, culture, and nature all intersect. And I feel like that's often the case with environmental issues is that they're kind of this nexus of many complex issues. And it really, you can really see it in the bison story. And what did you learn? Oh, goodness. I learned so much. Um, I learned uh, that there is actually a lot of space. There, there are some people in the world who um, are presented as being you know, super anti-bison and some people that are super pro-bison. Mm. And when I really spent time with people in both of those camps and many of the camps in between, I found that there's actually a lot of nuance and a lot of common ground more so than was being presented between mm. those two extremes. And also that um, but people are passionate about this animal on both sides, that some people really view it as a threat in a very personal way. And some people really – I had many people tear up as I was interviewing them when they were talking about their love for this animal. So I think that's really interesting how we can get so emotionally attached to a creature. Obviously, it's a big part of our, our nation's history, the bison and the, the, the Indians, if you will, and the Western uh, expansion. Um, did you talk to Native Americans about this and how their feelings uh, persist on on the bison? Absolutely, yeah. I really wanted to make um, different Native American voices one of the centerpieces of the season. And so um, we have seven uh, reservations in Montana, and I talked to people in, I think, three or four of them. And, um, and yeah, I feel like... Um, there's a. It seems like there's. I mean, there's, of course, there's a diversity of opinions within Indian country, just like within any community. But I would say that there's a really um, consistent and pretty passionate feeling among the Native Americans that I spoke with that they want to bring this animal back and that it's part of um, their cultural identity and it's a food source and it's a it's a major. It's a center of many Native American cultures. And I should say, not only in the West, um, there were bison right here in Missouri. There were bison. George Washington shot a bison in Virginia. There were bison all over this country. Um, It's just that we had um, pushed them so far west by the time that they were kind of at their um, crisis point that we associate Mm -hmm. them as a Western animal, but they can be a Midwestern Uh, animal too. (laughs) How do you bring them back? 
Well, there are a lot of people trying to bring them back through um, a variety of means. And one of the main things that bison need is room to roam, you know, just like the song goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so that's where, you know, the Western public lands really do pl- come into play because there's a lot of space out West. And um, one of the main ways you bring them back is you just basically make space for them and let them do their thing. They're an incredibly resilient species. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems right now is actually that the the um, the restoration effort in Yellowstone National Park has been very successful. It's the largest wild bison herd in the world. And um, it's almost become too successful in some people's eyes because the bison are wanting to expand out from there. And that's where the controversy begins. It's like, okay, if they want to leave the places we've designated uh, for them, you know, can we learn to tolerate and live with them um, in, in some of the transition zones? So, uh, Does climate change come into the bison story at all? I, I just mentioned that because I want to move to the next season too. But is climate change a factor in the bison story? You know, I think climate change is a factor in every story in one way or another. Um, but I do think that bison, it, it's not its not the, the primary driver of things that are changing for the bison mm. right now. Um, bison are incredibly adaptable. So they can live in, they've lived in, you know, Mexico. They can live in far northern Canada. So as long as bison have room to go where they need to go, they will find somewhere good to go. I said at the outset that I was a little surprised that bison was your first choice. I understand it better now. But I might have thought you would have started with ice melt, which was season, is season two, talking about the, the Arctic. Um, give me kind of an overview of, of uh, what you're doing there. Yeah, so I spent 18 months uh, reporting and researching in and on the Arctic. And um, the goal for this season was basically to try to understand what is the Arctic, how is it changing, and why does that matter? And we were really trying to understand that through the eyes of the people who live in the Arctic. Um, There's a lot of talk about the Arctic kind of from literally the 30,000-foot level from satellites and and scientific labs in other places. And that's all very important work. But I really wanted to try to understand this place through the eyes of people who are living in the Arctic. So it's about climate change, but it's not only about climate change. It's also about um, how people's lives are being affected um, by colonization and and by the climate effects that are happening. Let's listen to how you started season two of Threshold. For as long as human beings have walked this planet, there's been ice in the Arctic. It's always been there our constant companion, helping to keep the climate calm while we've been figuring out how to build civilizations. But now this region is warming twice as fast as the rest of the globe. The whole planet has a fever, but the Arctic's fever is worse. If you took all this ice and converted it to water and added it to the ocean, sea level would come up seven meters. That's glaciologist Joel Harper. We're going out onto the Greenland ice sheet with him later this season, and he says that what's happening in the far north affects all of us, no matter where we live. We depend on the frozen stuff in the Arctic to keep our climate stable, but it's all approaching a threshold, moving closer and closer each year to a series of tipping points that could push climate change into a whole nother level of bad. We wanted to get a better understanding of these processes, and we wanted to know what it feels like to the four million Arctic people who are watching their home melt around them. So for this season of our show, we went on a circumpolar journey to find out what the Arctic is, how it's changing, and why that matters to all of us. And we discovered that there are so many reasons to love the Arctic. The ice is just the beginning.
Welcome to season two of Threshold. What happens here should be of concern to everyone, no matter where they live. We can't fight Mother Nature. We can't fight the wave actions or the storms. It's there. It's real. I mean, we're talking about climate erosion. It happens to people's cultures, too. It's all about those people who are ruling the world and earning the money on the world. They don't hear us. You have to address all of these issues that are connected to each other, and that includes culture that is part of that environment. The Arctic is sort of the home of thresholds. It's the home of tipping points. Well, that's a clip from... uh the first episode of season two of Threshold. Amy, um, you talked to a lot of people during your visits to these various countries. Did you find any climate change deniers among them? I can honestly say I think we talked to more than 150 people. I haven't totally counted everybody yet. And um, we did not meet one person who denied the reality of climate change. It, it, when you're in the Arctic, if you if you were to say to someone – um, that you don't think climate change is real. It's it's a little bit like saying, like, you're looking at the blue sky saying, I don't think that's blue. It's mm-hmm. just, it's happening. I did meet um, maybe two or three people who were questioning whether or not it was human caused. But even they were sort of more just in the camp of like, well, I'm not totally sure, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it, it's it's a fact. It's so obvious there. It's, you know, as one person I talked to said, you know, I asked him how it felt when he heard that people didn't believe that climate change is real. And he just in a very polite way said, you know, it's kind of insulting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you know, I, another analogy I, I make is like, it's like if you're walking around in the middle of Hurricane Katrina and asking people like, do you think it's windy? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it is. <laughs> This was produced, obviously, before the most recent report came out on climate change. What was your reaction to that? I mean, that pretty much puts uh, the the, uh, makers of that report in your camp, needless to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I try not to have a camp other than the camp of telling telling the truth. Um, But but yeah, I mean, I I found it. uh, I mean, I think it's good that the report came out that said what it said. I think we need to really be focusing on this. It's in everyone's interest. It's absolutely not a political issue, a Democrat, Republican. Everyone's going to be affected and everyone needs to figure out how how to respond. Um, so I was really uh, pleased to see the report come out. And also, you know, it's terrifying, honestly. It's mm-hmm. very grim. And uh, it's the situation is needs our attention. And then we have the president of the United States saying people like him with high levels of intelligence don't buy into climate change. You don't want to get political, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I just don't even know how to respond to that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. And dealing with the Arctic these days, it's more than melting ice, though, isn't it? I mean, it opens it, it, several countries are involved, as you point out. Uh, there's a lot of oil under that ice. A lot of countries would make claims for that oil. Did you get into that at all? I did a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, um, I, I got to go to Russia, which was very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of the largest unproven or un, un, not unproven, some of the largest untapped reserves of natural gas and, and petroleum are in the Arctic. And Russia is making a major uh, a run for that right now. Um, a lot of it is on their part of the Arctic, but not exclusively. And, um, you know, it's one of those crazy, we talk about climate feedback loops. And this is a feedback loop that is involving human behavior, because the carbon emissions that we have released are, are warming the Arctic twice as fast as the rest of the planet, which is allowing us to access these, um, you know, natural resources, which if we drill and burn, will then warm the climate, mm-hmm. <laughs> melt the Arctic more. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a kind of a crazy cycle. And it's the kind of thing where I feel like in, in 500 years, human beings are going to look back and be like, 
what was up with that? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that just doesn't make any sense. But people can make money. So I heard something else about the thaw too recently that uh, I found interesting. Maybe maybe you've heard this that there's a concern that uh, with continuing thaw that there are a lot of critters buried under the ice. And when they are exposed, that it could unleash a whole new series of viruses for which we have absolutely no knowledge nor any way to combat. Yeah, that's talking about permafrost thaw. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it is, um, it's, a, it's one of those kind of scary sounding apocalyptic things. I think that there is, I mean, there already have been releases of anthrax in Siberia from mm-hmm. melting, really? from thawing permafrost and um, I think some other diseases too. And I think that is absolutely something to be paying attention to, and it's of concern. I would argue that of, of much greater concern is the fact that the permafrost in the Arctic, the permafrost, so permafrost is just soil that's been frozen for two years or more and continuously. In the Arctic, it's been frozen for like 20,000 years. Mm-hmm. So there is tons and tons of carbon held in that soil of all the dead plants and animals that, you know, that lived and died in the Arctic and their bodies were frozen. And um, and there are lots of microbes waiting there to start breaking that down. And there's actually twice as much carbon stored in Arctic permafrost soil as we have emitted since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So <laughs> this is what people don't understand. You know, they like to say, oh, who cares? One or two degrees of warming, what's the big deal? But if we add that much warming to the system, we are acting like a kindling mm-hmm. that can start this much bigger natural fire that's waiting there to start releasing all this mm-hmm. carbon. And we can at least theoretically control ourselves, but we can't control microbes. Once mm-hmm. we get them going, you know, they don't care about our climate agreements. They're just going to keep doing what microbes do. We're talking with Amy Martin, creator of Threshold, a podcast that takes deep dives into complicated environmental topics. We have to take a break, but we'll be back in a few minutes. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back to our conversation with Amy Martin of the Threshold Podcast. We're talking about her recent reporting on the effects of climate change. The first episode of her show's second season takes listeners to the Arctic, where she spoke with scores of residents about their perceptions of what's happening. Do the people that you spoke with during uh, your trip feel that they have any control at all over any of this? <laughs> you know, honestly, that was something that I heard a lot from people is that they don't feel like they do. They don't feel like they're being listened to. There are 4 million people who live in the Arctic, but they're divided up in between the eight Arctic countries. So in each country, they're a very, very, very small proportion of the total population. And they're often um, in communities that are not very wealthy and they're very remote from the centers of power. And it feels, you know, I heard that over and over of like people are not listening to us. Mm-hmm. And they, I'm sure, are paying attention to people like Donald Trump and people in this country who are the deniers. As you say, that uh, their reaction to that is very, very negative. Yeah, I mean, really, people in especially outside of the United States uh, were just they just kept asking me, like, what is up with your country? Like, we don't understand why this is even an issue. You know, even even conservative um, politicians and conservative parties in most of the Arctic countries, with Russia being the exception, 
are they have climate change on their platforms because it's not considered a, a right or left thing. You know, the, the, the core facts of science are not up for debate in many places, but they mm. certainly are here. Is there any good news out of this? I mean, sea routes are going to be uh, changing, and that could be a positive. Yeah, it, it could be a positive if, 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 if you're like a tourist who wants to go see the Arctic, and mm. that's, that's opening up. And um, also there's lots um, more shipping routes for, you know, goods getting um, around the world faster. Um, I, think the, I think the real positives are in the people. Um, I think there's some incredible strength and resilience in Arctic people. And if we were to orient towards that region as a place to be learning from, there's some really uh, amazing things we could learn from paying attention to Arctic people who, I mean, they've been adapting to climate change for 20 years, you know, or more. Like this is, they're so far ahead of the rest of us on this. And so I think if we, you know, there's a tendency, I think, to look at indigenous people in the Arctic as kind of like um, either victims or almost kind of infantilize them in some ways. But they are absolute uh, amazing, you know, uh, human beings who we should be paying more attention to and thinking of as leaders. Amy, I know you're spending time in here in St. Louis talking to, uh, to, to kids in schools. How are they reacting to the things you have to say? Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to be talking with St. Louis high school students because they are interested, they're concerned, they have great questions, they're smart. Like I, I try to throw out little uh, you know, quiz questions as we go through mm-hmm. my presentations and they, they, they're very well informed and um, more than anything, they're really passionate about it. And uh, I do want to I want to say the organization that kind of coordinated these visits is called Civitas, um, Arthur mm-hmm. Lieber's organization, and they're just doing such amazing work. And they've got these kids and, and the teachers that they work with too have these kids, you know, really thinking globally. And it was it's really heartening to see kids of all ages, all or not all ages, all they're mainly high school students, mm-hmm. but all backgrounds. Just you know, they're. They're worried, and they want they want solutions to this. And this is a time when a lot of people are worried that there aren't enough young people getting into the STEM disciplines. And it's good to hear and see that uh, a number of them are interested. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing to keep in mind with some of this stuff is, I mean, yeah, there's absolutely science um, angles that need to be taken. But a huge part of what's needed here are communicators, you know, and that means, you know, writers, thinkers, you know, artists, musicians. And so there is room in the climate change conversation for every type of kid, every type of human is needed in this. And um, yeah, I was really inspired by kids, kids that are writing papers about climate change, you know, kids who came up to me after we talked and were like, what can I do? Like, I want to help solve this, you know, and yeah, and if we just let them take over the world, things are going to get better a lot faster. What, what kinds of questions do they ask you? Um, you know, they ask some of them are quaint things like, what is it like to camp out on the Greenland ice sheet? You know, of course, which is <laughs> understandable. Um, but a lot of it was about like, what can we do? What, 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 should, what should we be trying to do here? And how can I help? So, Do you have any sense, having gotten into this as deeply as you have, that we're going to figure this stuff out at some point? <laughs> Are you an optimist, a half full, a glass half full or a glass half empty person? Well, I and naturally in my life in general, I am an incredibly optimistic person, and so um, I I do believe we can figure this out. I I mean, I guess the thing is, we have figured it out. We know what we need to do. We need to stop putting carbon emissions in the air. So the question really then is, are we going to make that choice? Are we going to are we going to start making that transition in a big way soon enough? 
And on that question, even for an optimist like me, I will say I'm I'm uncertain. I am definitely not in the camp of like, ah, it's all over. We shouldn't try. I think that's ridiculous. But I also think it's naive to say like, oh, yeah, we absolutely will. Because there are, you know, there are some problems that you can delay and delay and delay and you can still keep trying to fix it. And there are some problems if you don't fix them within a certain window, you don't get another shot. This is that kind of problem. And we've got and we are not on target. So Well, maybe as you say, these kids that you've been talking to will provide us with the answer. Absolutely. High schoolers for president, please. (laughs) (laughs) You got into this, obviously, as an objective reporter. What did you take away from it personally? Oh, gosh. One thing I took away from it is that the Arctic is absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I am so tired of hearing people call it a frozen wasteland or a barren wasteland. Mm -hmm. It is not a wasteland. And I I actually find that word – I'm starting to find it almost offensive because it feels like a way of disregarding the people and and trashing the place. Um, It's beautiful. It's special. Um, The people there are special. I think you – it changes you to live in that kind of environment, you know. Uh, it, it makes you into a certain kind of tough and interesting oh. person. Um, and I also took away from it, honestly, I'm very, very concerned about it. I mm. kind of both fell in love with it and it broke my heart at the same time. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about the people. What are they like? What's uh, what? What are their roots? Ah, uh, well, there's so there's a big, diverse, you know. Uh, mixture of people that have been living around the pole. And one thing that I think people don't understand is human beings have been living that in the far north for like 30,000 years. It's just amazing. We are an amazingly adaptable species. And so um, there's just some amazing ingenuity of people that, you know, have figured out how to survive up there. And at the same time right now, you know, Arctic people are thoroughly modern. You know, the one person who comes to mind is this guy that I met in Greenland named Akalawak. He's 22 years old. He's um, he's both indigenous and Danish. Greenland was colonized by Denmark, and he has roots in both both worlds, part Inuit, part Danish. And I asked him, you know, what do you like to do for fun? And he's like, oh, you know, in Greenland, you're supposed to want to go out and hunt and fish. And I really like to play video games and watch YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> How different. Yeah. How different from the rest of us, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And he said, you know, I, one of his heroes is Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, you know, he's just thoroughly modern millennial guy who's living in Greenland. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, there are people that are going out whaling and caribou hunting and then coming home and watching Netflix, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of a big mixture of worlds. Do you think threshold can can have an impact on some of these things we've been talking about? Well, I sure hope so. Mm. Um, I I mean, I'm under no illusions that my one little show is going to mm. have a massive effect. But I I guess what I really think we need right now are forums for thoughtful engagement with these issues, forums to learn about it in a way that we you know that is that is hopefully interesting and fun a little bit, and then just space to think about it deeply. I think in this um, in this kind of manic culture, you know, we hear little bits of news all the time, and there's always a ticker running on the TV with 10 million things going on, and we don't have enough opportunities to actually absorb what things mean. Mm-hmm. And I think if you don't understand not just the facts of what's happening in the Arctic, but why it matters and what it really means, it's hard to get motivated to do something about it. So that's my little hope that this can be part of that. What kind of a team do you have working with you? You're not doing it by yourself, I I don't think. (laughs) No, yeah. Hmm. I have a a wonderful producer named Nick Mott, um, and then there are um, an an outreach person and a development person, both really part-time, and um, we're trying to grow the team, actually, so we can do more with the show. 
Who's funding it? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I really wanted to mention that the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting is our main sponsor for this season, and we are so grateful to them. Um, We're also getting support from a few other foundations, and then we have some support from our home public radio station, Montana Public Radio. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And what's ahead for season three? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. Right now we're in the middle. I should mention our our listeners, our major funders as well. Right now we're in the Mm. middle of a big fund drive with our listeners. And kind of a little bit, depending on how that fund drive drive goes, we'll be able to kind of suss out what we can do for season three, you know? What, What would you like to do? Oh, gosh. I have so many ideas, but I try not to reveal them ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and, and where can people find the podcast? Uh, you just go online. It's just thresholdpodcast.org. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and a pleasure listening to what you've produced so far. Very nicely produced, by the way. Well, thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Good luck. I hope you find that funding and get, uh, get back out on the trail. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. That was Amy Martin, creator of Threshold, a podcast that dives deep into environmentally timely topics. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.